Geek Bill Radio. Broadcasting to you out of an old wooden shack in the heart of a deep forest, Geekville presents Examining the Dead, your monthly excursion into the world of classic horror and mysticism. Well, hello, my freaky darlings. This is becoming an annual thing with us, Seth. This is, of course, Crazy Train, a.k.a. Johnson Bullock, and we're doing our annual review of the 31 lesser-known movie trailers that I've been posting on Examine the Dead podcast's Facebook page. And as usual, I have my co-host and producer and editor and all that other stuff, the mayor of Geekville, Seth Zillman, a.k.a. Zandrax. You say you've seen some of these films already, huh? Yeah, definitely. If you're listening to this Halloween episode for the first time, we've done this twice before, just to give a kind of a Cliff's Notes of why we do this. Every Halloween, Train assembles a list of 31 lesser-known horror films, and he puts out one a day for the month of Halloween, because we love Halloween here at Geekville Radio and Examining the Dead. I mean, that's a month perfect for a show like this. So we post one every day, and then at the end of the month, we, of course, Halloween night, we go over these movies for each one, and some of them I've actually seen, some of them I've heard of, and I just kind of chime in when need be. So these are all recommendations by the Crazy Train himself as far as horror movies. We're not going to talk Nightmare on Elm Street. We're not going to talk Scream or anything like that, but we might talk about movies that inspired those films. I mean, is that a, a safe thing to say? Yep. They're, they're either lesser known or just, in my opinion, overlooked. So anyways, why would we just go ahead and start then, and we will, go, we will start with day one and work all the way to Halloween. And you should be hearing this. It should be up sometime Halloween afternoon if editing goes good, right, Seth? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. All right, well, we'll just start with day one and go down. And if you want to chime in, just 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 cut me off and let me know. So day one, we're going to take it really, really far back. It is from 1920, a black and white silent film called Der Gollum, or in English, The Gollum, How He Came Into the World. This is a German expressionist film. This was the art movement post-World War One in Germany. Obviously, they were extremely depressed because they had lost the war and there was a lot of economic problems. When you think German Expressionism, think Nosferatu, think Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which are not lesser known. The Gollum is probably is a little lesser known. It's, it's an interesting movie. This is actually the third in a trilogy of movies that were all based on a book. Uh, about the Gollum, the titular character is a Jewish folkloric creature, which is a, essentially a clay statue that is animated by a mysticism and then used to protect or enact revenge of whoever animated them. This is, unfortunately, like a lot of movies from this era, the originals were lost to the first and the third, so this is actually the second in the trilogy, and it is it is essentially the prequel, letting how the Gollum came to be and how he was animated it's a silent movie it is black and white but the dvds you can find of it do have subtitles in english and a score so it is not like watching the old silent movies back in the 20s yeah, I think, playing or something yeah right? yeah i think that the acting the visuals the special effects are extremely impressive especially when you consider that this movie's over 100 years old you can see how it probably really freaked people out in 1920. On to mm -hmm. day number two, that is 1984's The Night of the Comic. That is kind of a horror comedy. It's got a little bit of everything, and Seth can tell you this as well. If you grew up that 80, in the 80s with the Haley's Comet coming soon, this was kind of a thing in, that we were 
terrified what was it going to mean when a comet passed that close to the planet and it yeah that's that's a trope's been used in a horror before but in the 80s it was really kind of on people's minds so yeah. and if memory serves that was the cause at least in the short story for a maximum overdrive with it was stephen it was. king that it, it was it was a comet that caused all the machines to come to life right so there you go i mean there's another horror example but this is mid 80s it's 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 kind of like i said it's a comedy the the earth passes through the tail of a comet on i think christmas eve if i remember right and through a strange set of occurrences there are some survivors they're teenagers i won't spoil how they survive but some of the people who weren't protected turn into this red dust and other people who were protected but not completely are turned into zombies so it's a zombie movie it's a sci-fi movie it's a teenager movie and it also has a great like sub story about the video game from the eighties Tempest. So okay, I, I remember playing that game. Yeah, yeah, it was a great game. And, and just looking at the photo from the tag, I mean, you, you see these two clearly eighties gals with the the big oh, hair. Yeah. You might as well call them like Kelly and Becky, and they're carrying yeah. Mac tens. <laughs> so. yeah, 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 yeah. There is a little bit of that Valley Girl kind of thing working too, <laughs> which is also popular in that era. So right. anyway, on to day three is one of the films that I know Seth said he has seen. Mm-hmm. It is from 1954. It is called Them, with a, with an exclamation point at the end. This is a black and white film. It is one of the first films, it, it probably is the first film, to have the, this burgeoning experimentation with atomic power, mutating creatures, in this case, ants, and then them going on the rampage and attack. It has a lot of, a lot of trivia tied to it. Some of the cast members uh, are people that you will hear of later in the in the fifties in television. Fess Parker, who would go on to play Disney's Davy Crockett in their television show, and James Arness, who would go on to play Marshall Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke, were Mr. both Dillon. cast in those roles based on the, the this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I think what happened was Disney Walt Disney himself watched the movie. Wanting to cast James Arness as Davy Crockett wasn't impressed by him, but was impressed by the secondary character played by Fess Parker. And Fess is now an icon because of that. And then as far as James Arness goes and Gunsmoke, John Wayne saw the movie. And then John Wayne was approached to be played Marshall Dillon in Gunsmoke. And he, back then, TV stars didn't do movie and John Wayne was definitely a movie star. He said, I don't think I want to do it. But he suggested James Arness based on his performance that John Wayne was impressed by. And so that's kind of a cool little tie into Westerns, which are another uh, favorite of both of our yep. genres. So, yep, yep, definitely. Yeah. And I can add, definitely at yeah, 1954, that's the same year the original Japanese Godzilla. Now, it didn't get shown right. in the States until 57 with the Raymond Burr ad. Right. But right around the same year, they're doing this nuclear co- nuclear problems cause animals to mutate and this is really the 50s we'd won world war ii kind of the new enemy quote unquote you might say was communism and the soviet union although which really ran through the 80s but the, this is kind of the in its prime oh gosh we got to worry about the russians oh yeah oh yeah and i think that also it, it's just one of those things where we were as scared not only of of the communists but we were scared of nuclear power mm-hmm. we'd only we'd only learn its harnesses as mankind and what last 10 years and right. we didn't know what the long-term uh ramifications are going to be so mm-hmm. you know and it plays on that but anyway day four is ginger snaps from 2000 this is a werewolf film it's probably one of the more well-known movies all on the list but it's a unique feminist take on the vamp on the uh, werewolf 
Smith, suffice it to say, menstruation plays an important role in this. I think there's, I think it's very well done in the sense that it shows us like teenage angst from a girl's point of view. And it uses werewolves, lycanthropy, to be a, a catalyst for a lot of things about teenage angst. So it, I, I, I'm a big bear. Werewolves are my favorite uh, creature, like horror creature. I thought it was just very, very well done, very intelligent, easy to find since it was 2000. So it's, it's, that's probably one that if you want to go down the rabbit hole with any of these movies, that's going to be one of the easiest ones to find. Uh, day five is Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. We talked about this movie on last year's uh, Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame induction, which was Amicus Productions. That was the rival to Hammer Production, also a British studio, putting out a lot of horror in the 60s and 70s and using a lot of the same actors because they didn't have the contract players like we did in America at the time. So this was the first of a series of anthology movies that Amicus made with parts before and during all the different stories tying them all together. And that role is Dr. Terror, and he is played by one of, I think, the greatest actors of all time, Peter Cushing. So there's there's also a, a disembodied, reanimated hand story that stars Christopher Lee, another horror icon, and a very, very unknown Donald Sutherland in a vampire story. So, I mean, I think I said enough there to make anybody right. who be interested in seeing it see it. I, I think I said last year, it's like the cast alone makes us a must Yeah, yeah, exactly. Day six is... House by the Cemetery from 1981. This is the first uh, time we've dipped our toe into Giallo. If you follow these lists and you have every year, you know I like Giallo. That is the Italian contributions to horror films in the 70s and 80s. This is directed by my favorite Giallo director, Lucio Fulci, who is probably lesser known than the other two big name directors in that movement, Mario Bava and Dario Argento. But the three of them are considered like the unholy trinity of Giallo. Fulci is extremely gory. And a little bit stilted and disjoined in his storytelling. They're supposed to be surrealistic. This one probably has a little bit more of, of a of a realistic feel to it than some of his other stuff. But he himself said he wanted to make a, a Lovecraft story, but without using a Lovecraft story as source material. So he made this movie with the idea of having it be like Lovecraft, kind of like in the Mouth of Madness, John John Carpenter did the same thing. It was written by a guy named Dardano Sacchetti, who has wrote a lot of the horror movies from coming out of Italy. He says that he based the script that he wrote on Turn of the Screw. (laughs) So there was an argument between the writer and the director, but it is what it is. It's quite bloody. I think one of the reasons it probably is infamous is, once again, European is more so than American. They put children in some pretty dangerous situations in this. You don't see that a lot in American horror. So anyway, I, I will watch Fulci stuff over about 85, 90% of the stuff that they put out nowadays. It does say that. Mm-hmm. Day seven is from 1973. That was not a bad sound effects. Yes, I pronounced that right. And it's it's just seven S's, the title. And if you couldn't guess by, by how I pronounced the title, it's about snakes. Mm-hmm. The wonderful character actor, Strother Martin, who is known from much bigger films like True Grit and Buddy Holly's Story and and Slapstick, plays a herpetologist, which is, you know, a a snake expert, who has this obsessed with this idea that mankind is not going to be able to survive the changes in the environment, so he wants to create a snake-human hybrid that will be able to survive. And unfortunately, unknowing to them, testing his experiments on his assistants, and one dies at the start of the movie, and he's just recruited... A fresh-faced, yes, pun intended, 
Dirk Benedict as his new. This is long before Battlestar Galactica. This is long before A-Team. He was an unknown actor at the time. And so you get to see Face transform into this, this state human hybrid as the movie goes on. It's just great schlock. It's a B movie of the highest order. But I think we need to put one of those on, on every year. We just always do because they're just fun. You know? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen this one, but I did see commercials for it on UHF TV. I think it was the same station that I would watch, like Robotech and all that stuff back in the day, and where wrestling would have been on at that channel. I think I think it was WPWR, or it was WGBO, or something like that, like Channel Fifty, Channel Sixty, one of those high end uh, UHF stations. Right. So I right. haven't seen it, but I remember seeing the the commercials on TV, and even as a kid, thinking that name just sounded silly. Well, you're an A-Team fan, so you probably oh, yeah. get a little bit of a sick, sick, twisted pleasure out of seeing Bert Dirk Benedict. <laughs> <laughs> Dirk Benedict turned into a snake, Cobra Commander style. Into, yeah, and he, he tends to use King Cobras and Anacondas as the snakes that he gets the DNA from, if that means anything. Day 8 is comes to us from 1964. It is The Mask of the Red Death. This is a Vincent Price movie. We, we got to have at least one Vincent Price movie on all mm-hmm. these lists. There's two. There's another one coming later. This was in the cycle where Roger Corman, another name that's always on these lists, mm-hmm. right? He was in, he, he did a series, I think it was um, eight films based on Edgar Allan Poe works starring Vincent Price in the 60s. And this one is one of the better ones. I think my personal favorite is probably The Fall of House of Usher. Most people's is probably Pit in the Pendulum, but this is one's a little lesser known. It's, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman, and Vincent Price. Can you go wrong? Right. That seems like a pretty winning combination there. Yeah. I don't think you can go wrong if you're a horror fan with that that trio. So anyway, day nine is Cube from 1997. Love this film. Highly overlooked. It's one of the, the, every year I put one or two, maybe three movies on this list that are your thinking cap type movies. The movies where, oh, you can't do, you just don't like check your brain in and worry about the gore. No, you've got to think. This movie probably was an influence on Matrix and a few other movies that came along in the early 2000s and also the Saw franchise. It is about a, a, a room or a building that is shaped like a cube with all these separate rooms and, and these group of strangers meet and they realize that some of the rooms are trapped are trapped, and they got to figure out how to get out and which rooms are trapped. So it, it's kind of deep. I think... You you probably would be turned off a little bit by the gore, Seth, but I think the concept you would like. It sounds interesting on paper. And I mean, it's, it was it was successful enough to spawn a franchise. It had two sequels, and I think it was last week, maybe, uh, a Japanese remake of it dropped. And this was originally a Canadian production. There's an American remake in the works. So, I mean, two sequels and two remakes, that, that, that seems like fairly successful to me, you know? And, and you look at the genre of the escape room, it seems like this kind of fits with that as well. Oh, it does. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, like I said, it's a thinking cat move. And I get people think that because I love Friday the 13th, because I love schlocky movies like and stuff, that that's all I'm about. No, I like I like movies that make you think, too. I am college educated. I'm not a dumb guy. But anyway, on to on, on to day 10. This one is from 1982. It is a movie called Visiting Hours. This is right in the middle of the, the slasher craze of the of the 80s. This one's a little different, though. It's about a feminist activist who is being stalked by misogynistic, misogynistic and sexist killer who attempt to attack her, and she's injured. So she goes to a hospital, then it moves to the hospital, which had been made popular the, the year before by Halloween 2. I mean, hospitals it inherently are creepy to a lot of people anyways, right? hmm Yeah. So the best thing I can say about this movie 
is the misogynistic, sexist serial killer that's stalking the, the feminist activist is played by Michael Ironside. We have well, said before, any movie that makes Michael Ironside a bad guy is automatically a 7 out of 10. It can go no lower, right? Right. I mean, I think it's weak as far as slashers go. There are much better slashers from this era, but I'm always going to pay to see Michael Ironside play, play a, a, a bad guy. The funny thing is when it came out, there like a lot of horror movies, especially in this era, was automatically dismissed by you know the Roger Eberts and the Laurent Leonard Maltons and the big time critics of the, of, of, the, of the day as a violent towards women and misogynistic and and and, and did a violence for violence sakes and I'm like did they even watch the film that it was a she was a feminist activist who was being attacked because she was a feminist by a guy who has zero redeeming values whatsoever. Right. The feminist is the protagonist. The feminist is the good guy or girl. So what's the problem? Right. And the bad guy is a bad guy simply because he is so sexist. That seems pro-woman to me, not Mm anti-woman. Am I wrong? Agreed. Agreed. Well, all right. Day 11 uh, is from 1962. It's called Carnival of Souls. This is a movie I bet a lot of people have heard the title but have never seen the movie. Yeah, I I have Um, seen it. So I can can comment a little bit on it. Yeah, and it's... I would say it's straight horror. Would you not say it's kind of more psychological thriller? I, I, w- I would say so. And I'll, I'll get it out of the way that, yes, one of the things I remember about this movie was that whole, like, 15-mile-an-hour car chase scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, it was very well-received in the day. It's black and white. Mm-hmm. But Leonard Maltin is, is likened it to a lost episode of The Twilight Zone. So you get kind of that that disjointed feeling that you would expect watching a, a film like this that's a great analogy um, and there there is a colorized version out there that actually uses modern color techniques so it actually looks really good oh okay i, I didn't i haven't even seen that one i've only seen mm. the black and white side note david lynch and george a romero two pretty well-known directors and and very respected have both cited this film as as uh, inspirations for them so i think that speaks highly for the you know mm-hmm. day 12 is a movie from 1944 called the climax and yes, I know that name sounds like it should be a porno, but it's not. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. actually a horror movie. Um, this was right at, towards the end of Universal's cycle of horror movies that started, of course, with Frank, uh, Frankenstein and Dracula. And I find it very unique because this was meant to be a sequel to their version of Phantom of the Opera. And what makes it unique for a horror movie, especially a universal horror movie from this era, is A, it's in color. And B, it is a musical. There musical are horror. It's not a full. Yeah, it's not a full on musical like like Greece or Oklahoma or West Side Story. But they do really dip into the opera setting. So you see full on choreography and, and score and, and, and music and stuff. And it stars Boris Karloff. So, right. And the only real tie to their version of Fam of the Opera is the, is the star, the female lead, who happens to also she plays basically the same role she plays christine in the original and this one plays a different character but she's still the the muse that the bad guy is is lusting after and and obsessed with but the fact that it's a universal movie from this era horror movie in color and somewhat of a of a horror musical i think that in and of itself makes it kind of unique don't you oh definitely yeah yeah so anyway day 13 one of my favorite movies on this list this is night of the creeps from 19, uh, 1986, just an absolute hilarious comedy slash horror movie. It is a cult film of the highest order. It was directed by Fred Decker, who would go on to dip his toe into family horror with The Monster Squad, which I know you're familiar with, 
and, and RoboCop 3. He wanted to make an homage to like the, those 50s horror movies, and that's exactly what this movie is. It's about a college, a small town that has a college, and the night of like one of the fraternities on, on or one of the sororities on campus having their formal the undead rise and there's a backstory about the town being cursed and it goes back it starts out with a flashback scene in the 50s and it stars the absolutely awesome tom atkins and the lead as the lead detective is investigating these zombies that are by the way created by alien slugs so there's a slither tie in too i guess james gunn <laughs> liked this movie huh? <laughs> but the best part of the movie is that anytime the tom atkins character is asked a question he answers it with thrill me thrill me and he usually says thrill me as he's putting a cigarette in his mouth to light it up so if you ever meet tom atkins and you ask him to sign your your his autograph thrill me he will probably chuckle so <laughs> i actually think you'd like this movie seth because it's yeah. right up your alley yeah yeah that, that 50s homage sounds perfect to me right and i mean it's i mean it has 80s special effects so there is a little bit of gore and graphic but i mean it, it it's campy it's silly yeah it, it's know? probably if 50s horror could do stuff like that at the time they probably would have Exactly. Day 14, we talked about Godzilla earlier. Here's what movie I think was even a bigger influence than them. It is from 1953, and it is called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which is based loosely on a, on a Ray Bradbury short story. This was the first nuclear-powered creature feature. So it even predates them. It, predates, it came out a year before Godzilla. And if you watch this movie, it's obvious the filmmakers who made Godzilla were inspired by it. And the, the creature attacks New York, and we had never seen since, what, 33 and Kong, a mm -hmm. large creature feature where they attack that, that iconic skyline of New York like this. You know, so it, it's really, really, really cool. Plus, I think another thing that's awesome about it is this is a Ray Harryhausen special effects, who, of course, is a legend and iconic in stop motion. And is generally considered to be one of his best pieces of work. I mean, right up there with Jason and the Argonaut. So that should tell you how good the stop motion animated is for the era. I think once again, being a kaiju fan like you are, a Ray Harryhausen fan like you are, and it being from the 50s, this might be one that if you haven't seen, you would look into. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I saw it when I was little, uh, but uh, I, I, I owe it uh, reviewing. But it, it's one of those I think just about everybody's at least heard of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, day 15 comes to us. From 1995, and it is a full moon entertainment movie. So you know what uh, you're called getting. Called Castle Freak. You see, so you know what you're getting. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We've talked about full moon entertainment all this month and every October. Of course, started by Charles Band. They are the same studios that brought us the Demonic Toys franchise, the Puppet Master franchise for sci-fi fans, the Trancers franchise. And a lot of their horror movies were done by Stuart Gordon, who, who was the a director. He directed a reanimator and he almost always cast Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. He does in this movie. This was after he'd done reanimator and after he'd done his version of Pitman. And it's about a couple that, that moves in with a daughter to a European castle that I can't remember if they bought it cheap or inherited it. But there is like chained up downstairs, a freakish mutation. The titular capsules, Castle Freak, and, and all kinds of craziness ensues. So, I mean, I mean, if you listen to the, this podcast, you know I'm I'm in love with Barbara Crampton, so I'll always watch her. <laughs> and uh, one of the cool things about it is with with Full Moon being a direct to video model where they didn't release things theatrically, Stuart Gordon said, "I'm going to make a movie that I don't have to worry about getting a rating." And you, it shows in this movie. Early on in the movie, when 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 the creature is revealed, 
it captures the family cat and eats it, kills and eats it. Now, how often do you see that in horror movies? I mean, even Michael Myers killing the dog in the first Halloween is done off screen. So anyway, next movie, uh, Day 16, is is also an older movie from 1957, another black and white movie that was released under two different titles, Curse of the Demon or Night of the Demon. I'm glad I went with Curse because that would have made it the third Night of movie <laughs> I had listed. But this is uh, this is a movie that is is obviously supernatural in origin with with demons and stuff. It is really regarded highly by, by hardcore horror fans like me as one of the early examples of really, really good special effects. And the best thing I can say about this movie is, well, one, two things. One, it has a pretty cool twist ending. But two, it is in that rarefied air where it actually has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. You don't see wow. that a lot. Especially for horror. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I don't, I, there's nothing else I could say that would, that would convince you to say it that that could day 17 uh is a fairly new movie from 2002 it is a, is a independent movie from scotland called dog soldier this movie is a the second werewolf entry on the list i love this movie it is an action horror movie much in the in the, in the vein of like aliens it stars a sean pertwee who of course is the son of john pertwee one of the, mm-hmm. one of the uh former doctor who's so there's our doctor who obligatory reference for this episode and if if American audiences probably know him as playing the role of Alfred in the in the television show Gotham, but it's about a squad of Scottish soldiers on uh, a weekend operations, training operations in the Scottish Highlands, and then there's werewolves, and I'll just leave it at that. It's really, really good. It's really good. I love that mm-hmm. movie, but I have openly been a werewolf fan, so maybe I'm looking through full moon tinted glasses, so to speak, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Day 18 is from 1971, of the year that I was born. And it is a movie called Blood on Satan's Claw. There's no way this couldn't be a horror movie. <laughs> like that, right. <laughs> this is an early example of what they call folk horror. Uh, you probably never heard the term before, but folk horror, I bet you've heard of movies that are considered folk horror. Movies like Midsummer, The Witch, The Village. These are all fairly recent movies. Some of them highly praised. But a folk horror is a music period piece set in a rural setting and the reason for that is because they're off they're almost always supernatural, but it's not it's not an explicit supernatural like Poltergeist or The Omen or movies like that. It is a, an implied supernatural where you don't ever really know neither the viewer or the the cast because in that setting, think about it. Back in the 1600s in rural areas, there was religious fervor, there was not nearly the knowledge of science. So anything that was unexplained automatically got blamed on the devil or or witchcraft, did it not? Right, yeah, definitely. In, in so, so many horrors, there's always that religious zealot that uh, yep, preaches yep, doom yep. for everybody who enters. And it, this wasn't really well-reviewed at the time of its release, but in time, it has become to seen as a precursor and very important in the development of this subgenre, right up there with contemporaries like The Witchfinder General, starring Vincent Price, which I highlighted in the first year we did this, and one that's very well-known, the 1973 original Wicker Man, Christopher Lee. You know, mm-hmm. not the god awful Nick Cage. Okay, but I think part of what makes this movie work, it was filmed entirely on location and actually used like old ruins on in the English countryside. So that gives it a real feel, a real more reality. You can tell it's on a soundstage. You know what I'm saying? I also am shocked that it's a movie from that that long ago, fifty years ago, and it, it, it the cinematography and camera work has held up. The coloring has held up, which. Doesn't usually happen in, in movies that I mean you watch like I love I mean my favorite movie of all time is the seventy eight Halloween by Carpenter. 
But when you watch it, even in 4K, re- digitally remastered, you could tell it was filmed in 1978. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so anyway. Day 19 is Critters from 1986. I get a feeling you may have seen this, Seth. Have you? Yeah, I, th- I think I saw the TV version, but I, I can definitely vouch for this is that kind of sci-fi horror and even a little bit of comedy crossover. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It stars Dee Wallace, who, of course, is a horror icon. But at the time, seen as a ripoff of Gremlin, which came out the year before. But the director has, and rightfully so, pointed out, the script for Critters was actually written before Gremlin. And they were so worried about it being compared to Gremlins, when they when they finally got around to filming it, they changed major parts of the script to make sure there weren't those similarities. So it was written a full year before Gremlins. It just, Gremlins got greenlit before it did. But this was independent, and Gremlins was a major motion picture, a major studio backing. So there is, there is, therein lies the difference. The other big difference is these critters, like you said, sci-fi, they're actually aliens, whereas the Gremlins are more like supernatural, you know, right. or like some kind of folkloric creep. So you know, it, it it it's it's a little more gory than than Gremlins, though. Gremlins, remember, is one of the one of the two movies that made the MPAA create the PG thirteen. So mm-hmm. anyway, all right, day day twenty, the nineteen thirty two version of Murders in the Rue Morgue. This is early, early in Universal's horror cycle, and Dracula had been made. Frankenstein was a pre-production when this movie got greenlit. They decided, hey, we're having all this luck with horror. Why not adapt to Poe, right? So they adapt Murders in the And was very dismissed at, at the time. In fact, the Universal execs described the response from critics at the time as harsh. It has now been reassessed as much better than what it was evaluated at the time of its release. It's seen for its historical importance. It stars Bela Lugosi. And I think that people were comparing it to Frankenstein and Dracula, which were both gothic horrors. And this is not gothic. This is Edgar Allan Poe. It's a little different. This particular Poe work, Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is considered also, by the way, one of the first mystery novels or stories, right along with The Purloined Letter, it's it, it's been done three times now in three different eras. It's been turned into a film. And it's gen- this one is now generally regarded as the best of the three, the best adaptation of the three. So let's get Bell Lugosi, Universal, Poe. It's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? Winning combination, yeah. Yeah. The next movie is, is, is I think, the truest dark horse of the list this year. Day 21 is The Manito from 19, 1978. I actually saw this movie when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old on a, in an edited version on like a, a movie of the week, I think on ABC or CBS. But the reason I say it's a sleeper is it's a, it has a little bit of body horror, but there's also a supernatural element. What makes it unique is the Manito is an action Iroquois Indian myth about a, a creature that is like a collection of evil spirits that, that stalks and hunts. And so in this movie... The female lead, she develops this growth on her neck. She can't figure out what it is. She goes to doctors, hoping they will they can figure it out, and they x-ray it, and it makes it grow bigger. Her boyfriend is played by Tony Curtis, pretty big-name actor for a guy who, to be in a horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. And he's a psychic, a professional psychic. He senses something supernatural at play here. As this growth on her neck gets bigger and bigger, he realizes that that it is some kind of entity inside her you know, that's trying to get out. And he realizes it's beyond his abilities. So he enlists the help of a Native American shaman played by Michael Ansara to help him combat it. And you're, you learn that this growth is going to be the birthing of this Manito. So I just find it very cool that they use an actual Native American shaman character 
in the same character, in the same place that we always see in most horror movies, a man of science or a medium like Zelda, Zelda Rubenstein's character in the Poltergeist movies or a Catholic priest. And it's like, I've never understood why Native American spirituality and folklore is not used more in horror. I mean, werewolves, vampires, that's Eastern European folklore. We see the Japanese ghost stories with stuff like Ring and The Grudge. We see zombies being like starting out as Haitian. So we have all these different type of horror movies that deal with the folklore and the spiritual beliefs of of, of certain ethnic groups and areas. Well, the Native Americans had a long history of folklore and the supernatural. Why has that not been tapped into? And this movie actually does it. I mean, usually the only thing you hear about Native American folklore in a horror movie is, oh, that place is cursed because it was built on an Indian burial ground. That's all we ever hear, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it seems. And you never have a, a shaman be the good guy. The only other movie I can think of is and is a movie I probably will make this list in the next few years it's called Ravenous that deals with the Canadian Native American myth of the Wendigo, which is kind of like a, a Yeti or an abominable snowman gone evil. But that's the only other time I can think of it. Really a dark horse. If you like body horror, if you like supernatural, if you think it's just a cool idea to see Native American spirituality and folkloric beliefs, this is the movie for you. It's the dark horse on this list, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So anyway, enough, enough gushing over that. <laughs> Day 22 is another toe dipped into Giallo. This one directed by Dario Argento, probably the most well-known of all the Giallo directors from 1985, and it is called Phenomenon over in Europe. Over here, it was released as Creeper. Okay, and, that I've heard and, of. And it had 20 minutes cut out of it. This is the 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 first role Jennifer Conley ever had. This is before Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. She plays a telekinetic psychic girl whose telekinetic abilities manifest through her ability to communicate with bugs. And there's a serial killer at the boarding school that she goes to, and she uses her ability to communicate with bugs to track him down. It also co-stars Donald Pleasance as a psychiatrist. That's around a real stretch for Donald for Donald Pleasance, right? Yeah, yeah. probably had to work <laughs> so for that. One. It, yeah, probably had to work out. Yeah, the reason I was attracted to this film initially was Dario Gento. Uh, usually went the more traditional route and had like orchestral scores made for his movies. He eschewed that in this movie and went with the more popular mid-80s using popular music of the time. So it has a full soundtrack of original music that includes people like Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones wrote a song for this. There's a Swedish band called Goblin who is a progressive rock band. They write a lot. They did a lot of the songs on this soundtrack. There's a Motorhead song on the soundtrack. But what really drew me in before I even knew anything about Jennifer Conley or even saw Donald Pleasance in it, Flash of the Blade by my favorite band Iron Maiden is on the soundtrack, <laughs> which is from their from their 1984 album Power Slave. So Jennifer Conley, Donald Pleasance, Dario Argento, and Iron Maiden. Yeah, you got the crazy winning train. combination. Yeah, for for Crazy Train for sure. Yeah, day day 23 is an, an exploitation film from 1970 called Count Yorga, Vampire. This is one of those movies I think a lot of people have heard of but probably never seen. Have you heard of this movie before, Seth? I've probably heard of it, but it seems like it's like the a textbook definition of what we mean when we say grindhouse-type movie. Oh, it was. It totally was a grindhouse movie. It is so similar in story to Dracula, I am shocked that Bram Stoker's estate did not sue. Okay? But what makes this unique is, I don't know if it was the first, but it was one of the first movies... To, to take the vampires that have been around for years in movies, take them out of Eastern Europe, take them out of period pieces, and place them in a modern setting, this being 1970s L.A. But like you said, it's Grindhouse, so we're at the end of the counterculture hippie movement, so there's a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, a lot of nudity. But I think historic in the sense that 
it, it, it kind of lays the template for much more well-known and better done vampire movies later on, like Interview the Vampire, like Lost Boys, like Fright Night, where it's putting vampires now in a modern set. You know, so it definitely, definitely did that. Day 24. This might be the best made movie on the list. Mm-hmm. If not, it'll be it'll, it'll be number 30. But it's called Dark City, and it is from it is from 1998. H- have you heard of this movie, Seth? I've seen this movie. This is, this is a great movie. It, this is one of those movies where, except for one scene, which has uh, very gratuitous nudity in it, it's like, I was thinking, why was this movie R-rated? Because if you take mm-hmm. that scene out of it, this could have gotten away with the PG-13. Now, maybe they went yeah. to go with the mm-hmm. R-rating because they wanted to attract the R-rated audience. But yeah, mm-hmm. this is... This definitely fits one of those, I don't know if psychological is the word, but mm. it, it's almost like a modern-day Twilight Zone movie, if that makes any sense, it because it just it, gets I, more I totally and more agree. twisted as it goes. It is very dystopian, very Kafka-esque. It's, it, it has a great cast. It stars the aforementioned Jennifer Conley, Kiefer Sutherland, Rufus Sewell, who plays the lead in, in, in the wonderful Amazon Prime series. Bandit from the High Castle, Richard O'Brien, Riff Raff, and from Rocky Horror, the guy who wrote Rocky Horror, he's in it, and William Hurt. So great cast. It's directed by Alec Pro- Alex Proyas. Yeah, make sure I pronounce it correct. He's Eastern European. I'm sorry, I don't speak that. that, that mm-hmm. uh, but this is the first movie he did after directing the original Crow with Brandon Lee. Yeah. So it has that very film noir, dark cinematography like you see in The Crow. Yeah. But and I mean, this, this is really I, I when Kiefer was at the the height of his appeal. I think when he was doing just about every sort of different character you could imagine: good guys, bad guys, you know, yep. side side characters, cameos. Yeah, because I mean, this is after Young Guns. This is after uh, Lost Boys. This is after Flatliner. So he, I mean, he is no longer Donald Sutherland's kid. He is now right. his own actor. Don't you agree? Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a great movie. If, if once again, it's another thinking cap movie. Much like Q, but I I think if you're a fan of the Matrix, you probably need to see this movie because it's obvious it influenced the Matrix. Don't you agree? Yeah, yeah, it was before the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, it was. So you can definitely tell it was an influence. So anyway, number number twenty five, day twenty five from nineteen sixty three, Blood Feast. Probably one of those movies like like much like I Spit on Your Grave. Everybody's heard of it, but they haven't they've never they've never seen it. I'm assuming mm-hmm. you've heard of it, but never seen it, Seth. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It it was made by another one of those Gordons from horror. Herschel Gordon Lewis, and it is generally regarded as the first splatter film. Where like the amount of graphic violence and bloodletting is so over the top, it's almost comical in its nature. It's a short film; it's only sixty-seven minutes long. It's the story of a, of a of a of an Egyptian deli owner who murders beautiful women and then uses their body parts and blood as a sacrifice to his Egyptian god Ishtar. So it, it's comical how much blood there is, and it was reviewed as such at the time. But it does have a legacy because it was the first splatter film. So much so that that another movie I probably will will highlight in another years. It had a spiritual successor created in the eighties called Blood Diner. That is essentially the main characters' uh, two nephews and then running a whole diner where they they kill people to make the sacrifice. So yeah, oh, okay. and in a hope in an attempt to resurrect their uncle. So hmm. I mean. If 20 years later it made some spiritual successor, it was it obviously had some influence on somebody, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what it sounds like to me without having seen it is it sounds like somebody was inspired by Psycho and then just went with the slasher blood gross out elements uh, that Psycho had with that infamous shower scene. He just basically made that the entire movie. And did it color so you saw the blood. Okay. 
And the thing, the thing is interesting about, I've always said this, Tom Savini talked about it with the special effects he did for Friday the 13th, the first one, is that the blood you see in like Blood, blood Feast, they had not really perfected the look of, of, of stage blood yet. It's very bright red and looks almost like paint. And Tom Savini, part of the reason he's the king of splatter is, and he, he kind of created his own mixture for Friday the 13th, that looks like real blood. It has the same viscosity and it has a shine to it. It's a darker red. So that's sometimes I, I think in the bloody movies of the 60s and 70s, that is some of the humorous because like, oh my gosh, it looks like red paint. It doesn't even look like blood. But there's a whole lot of it used in that movie. Well, it's kind of blood feast. It's obviously going to be a lot of blood in the movie, right? Right. So anyway. Otherwise, it would just be a feast. Yeah, without, without question. So Day 26 is another movie that's somewhat historical. It is 976 Evil. I've seen, seen this, this one too. You've seen this, You have seen this. This is the directorial debut of Freddy Krueger himself, Robert England. So I did not know that, actually. It, that. Yeah, it was. It was It was a movie that, that, that was actually written by Brian Hegland, who would go on to be known for writing, writing getting an Oscar for his for best uh, adapted screenplay for L.A. Confidential. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, but it was like, I think this might have been his first movie, but... Robert enjoyed working with him so much, he suggested to Bob Shea that he hire this guy, and so he did. And he's the one who wrote. So Brian Hagelin, after this, wrote Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, Viewmaster. So I think, you know, historical in the sense that it's the directorial debut of Robert England. And he's only directed one other film since then. This was really critically panned. Fans didn't like it. But I think there was a nugget of some good stuff there. You've seen it. Yeah, there there was definitely this thing for those younger listeners in the in this era in the late eighties early nineties. There were these what they call premium toll lines that would be like ninety nine cents for the first minute, like three dollars right. every minute after, yep. and they usually began with the prefix nine seven six, and they later became so this, like eight hundred or nine nine one nine hundred numbers stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. So the concept here is this kind of weird. This is horror trope. Weird, picked on, bullied kid finds a, a a business card for a one of these numbers called nine seven six evil that gives him his horror h o r r o r scope. And what you find out is it actually is a a direct line to Satan and hell. And he winds up selling his soul, not knowing it. So it's 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 not the greatest film, but I think the fact that it was directed by Robert England makes it important, don't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah. Anyway, day twenty seven, another Vincent Price movie. This is 1959's The Tingler. You've probably heard of this movie and probably seen it too, or at least heard of it. I know. Probably heard of it, but uh, at least the images don't ring any bells offhand. Mm. This is a William Castle production. We worked with a writer named Rob White, R O B B, two B's, and Vincent Price in a series of movies that included House on Haunted Hill, which I, I was one of my favorite horror movies of all times. And the thing about William Castle, I don't think he was a great director. He was okay. What he was really good at was marketing, and he was this, the, 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 very much a vaudevillian. He would have been great in the wrestling. <laughs> He'd been great yeah. the wrestling promoter. He he had all these little gimmicks he would tie in with the release of his movies to get people in in, in the door. Like on House on Haunted Hill, he would have the, the the theaters across the country playing the movie rigged with these skeletons on wires, and in certain parts of the movie, the skeletons would 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 shoot down across the wires and fly over the audience. The gimmick to Tingler was uh, a gimmick he called Percepto. And let me explain the movie before I explain what Percepto is. The movie stars Vincent Price as a doctor who discovers 
of this creature, the titular tingler, that attaches itself to human beings' spines, and it feeds on our fear. And the only way for it to release from your spine is you scream, because that's how you relieve your fear. You scream, right? Mm -hmm. And so to sell this, Percepto was, if you scream loud enough, Percepto was going to perceive that you had done this and not have the tingler attack you. But if you didn't scream enough, you could actually have the tingler attack you in the theater. And what he did was he had actually had seats in the auditoriums of the theaters it was playing in wired with a mild electrical shock and a vibration. That would never fly in 2021, right. would it? Because <laughs> there, there'd be people who might actually get medical problems coming out of that. Right. But hey, man, it worked. It worked. In, it worked in 1959. <laughs> mm-hmm. But anyways, I, I just... I. I I actually think it's a pretty good movie on top of the, the gimmickry involved. But anyway, like once again, Vincent Price, William Castle. It's kind of a winning combination. Can't lose. All right, day 28. This is another movie that's very historical and very overlooked. It is called Eaten Alive from 1977. And this was the movie after Texas Chainsaw Massacre that screenplay writer Kim Hinkle and co-screenplay writer and director Toby Hooper did. This was an original screenplay by them. They were brought in as hired guns to make this movie. You should notice by the year, year, year release, 77, and the name Eaton Alive, it shouldn't be hard to figure out that it was meant to be a, 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 a ripoff of Jaws from 76. Right. Except the creature here is a, is a man-eating crocodile. Well, when Kim and Toby get a hold of it, they turn it into something entirely different. It's part Psycho, it's part Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it's part Jaws ripoff. And it has a completely unknown years before he would put on the burned-up makeup Robert England. As one of the stars. And it, it's, it has Marilyn Burns, who played the, the, the final girl from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She's in a strange role in this. This is a grindhouse movie to the highest level. They're, unlike Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby goes completely for the gore and blood. There's tons of blood in this. It's It feels surrealistic because it was shot on a soundstage as opposed to on location, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which has more of a documentary feel because it was done all on location. And Robert England's character has one of the best lines ever in a horror movie in this. His very first line, his character's name is Buck, Buck, is visiting a brothel. And when the prostitute comes into the room to ask him, you know, this he's her John, you know, what's your name? She's trying to get to know him. And his line is, and imagine a young, without the Freddy makeup on, Robert England saying this, my name is Buck and I'm here to fuck. <laughs> is there a greater exploitation line, film line than that? Can there be? (laughs) I mean, that line was used by Quentin Tarantino in Kill Bill. So I think he's safe to say he was probably a fan of this film. Don't you think? It seems like his type of thing. Yeah. You've never seen it, but you can imagine Robert England pulling off that line, can't you? Yeah, because I've (laughs) I've seen Robert England do a lot of stuff outside of Nightmare on Elm Street. So I know he actually is a very good character actor. Oh, yes. Yes. And I mean, you see this. If you're a fan of Nightmare on Elm Street, you need to watch this movie simply because you will understand years before he's cast as Freddy Krueger, it was there all along. The mm-hmm. ability to be sardonic and evil and menacing and sexually explicit and kind of gross, it's all there. And we've sung and, the phrases of Toby Hooper before, especially in our tribute to him a few years back. Yeah, and I'll be honest with you, if you're going to be a sleaze bucket. You might as well be ones with a panache, and and Robert England is, has a little bit of panache to his sleaze bucketness. And, and mm-hmm. a minor spoiler for those that haven't seen it, his character gets a fitting end. I'll just leave it at that. It's a horror movie. You know pretty much everybody dies, right? Right. <laughs> All right, day 29 uh, is 
Chopping, like chopping with an axe or a knife, Mall. Have you heard of this film, Seth? I've heard of it. I don't think I've seen it, but the images of the robot alone make me want to see it. Right. This is another 80s movie. This is 1986. Again, that's like the fifth movie from this list from 1986. It's a good year for horror. This stars, well, <laughs> shocker, one of the co-stars is, is Barbara Crampton. I told you I love her, but it's it's a Jim Wynorski was a director and the, and the, and the screenplay writer. Wynorski is probably more known for like his softcore erotic parodies of, of, of well-known movies. Like I know he did the, the bear witch project. It was his spoof of the bear, the, the, the Blair witch project, but he did do some horror early on. He, for you're a, you're a guy who, who likes cheesy movies. He was a director and writer of death, of death stalker too. great okay. sword and sorcery and sandal movie from the, and 80s. actually has a pretty good soundtrack too. As cheesy as it the does. movie is, the soundtrack's mm-hmm. pretty good. Yeah, exactly. I know you know Death Stalker too. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But anyway, this movie is about a group of college kids. They stay in a, in a shopping mall overnight to have some fun, and the mall has just installed these new robotic security system that go haywire and go on a killing spree. Do I need to say much of else? It seems like it's all in that uh, preview image, you might say. Right, and and this is I think the problem. The movie wasn't that well received. A lot of horror fans liked it later on. It was one of those that I, I, I didn't see in the theater. I saw like a video rental. It was marketed as a slasher, and it's not a slasher. It's a sci-fi. It's and, a sci-fi and, and, and the with some pretty horror. explicit violence, right? Yeah, yeah. And at the Okay, with a title like Chopping Mall, I'm going in as a horror fan. I want to see somebody chopped up. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the robots use lasers a lot. You don't chop people with lasers. <laughs> you chop yeah. people with knives and machetes and axes. But right. I digress. All right. Day 30. This is probably in the right up there with Dark City is the best made film on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is is probably the most well-known movie. On, and it is 1990s Nightbreed from Clive Barker. This I know you have heard of, even if you haven't Definitely seen it. Definitely have heard of. I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. This was the second movie that Clive Barker directed after he had directed Hellraiser. Also based on his work, uh, like Hellraiser, being based on the Book of Blood. This is a book based on his novella Cabal. This is another movie that was was marketed erroneously by the by the studio as a slasher movie. They also interfered heavily with the editing process. And it is a supernatural dark fantasy. That's how he describes it. It's meant to be like a dark fairy tale with horror elements. There is a serial killer in it who's played absolutely brilliantly by the body horror expert director, David Cronenberg. And he's awesome in the role. He, he steals the scene every scene he's in. But just because it has a serial killer... It is not a slasher movie. It is much deeper. I seem to uh, recall you know, people pointing to this movie for saying that he would have been a good Dr. Octopus if they'd made a Spider-Man movie in the 90s. Oh, he would have. You, if you see this movie, you will, you, will, you will know that. And there is some gore in it, but I think you actually can handle this a whole lot less gore mm-hmm. than Hellraiser. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I think you might actually like this movie. I think it's very, very well done. It's one of my favorite horror movies of, of that era, of that generation and that era. But let's face it, by 1990... Scream had come out. Yeah, horror movies were kind of in the dumps. They were kind of, they were on the downslide. Yeah. Then it's marketed wrong. And it just was, a, that's a recipe for not success. But anyway, it's one of those things where Clive Barker begged and begged for years. Let me get the original footage, the stuff that hit the cutting room floor. And well, he finally got it in 2014. Scream Factory put out a digitally remastered director's cut using that stuff. And I strongly suggest if you seek out this film, seek out that version. Because it will make the story a whole lot easier to understand. And it's Scream Factory, so how hard can it be to find? I mean, right. all right. And the big one, drum roll, please, for Halloween, 
the the best movie on the best movie I think and this year's list is also the most recent movie. It is 2018's Hellfest. It has a fairly well un- unknown cast, except one actress, and I cannot remember her name, but she was in Arrow. Remember, what was the what was the actress's name? We're doing this on the fly, ladies and gentlemen. What was the actress's name, Seth, that played the character who was like uh, the little street urchin girl who was friends with with Roy in Arrow, the dark headed girl? Remember her? Is it Bex Taylor Klaus? I'm thinking that might be it. Uh, yeah, r- rings a bell. Looks looks a little bit familiar. I haven't seen Arrow and haven't seen the early Arrows in a long time. Yeah, but but Bex Taylor Klaus is the actress's name. But I guess the biggest tie into the horror world, because it's mostly unknown, unknown actors and actresses, is uh, there is an important character played by Tony Todd, which, I mean, that's Candyman himself. So yeah. Obviously, horror royalty. Mm-hmm. But this movie, and I don't want to give it away because it has one of the absolute best and creepiest twist endings I have ever seen in a movie. And for a horror, maybe like, that's saying yeah, a lot. saying you know? something. Yeah, is... You know how it's a big deal now to have the amusement parks do these 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 October long fright nights or you know mm-hmm. you know whole universal horror nights at Universal Studios or not scary farms stuff like that. Right. This takes that concept of a traveling affair like like county fair that that's the whole thing it does. That's all it does is horror themed stuff and it goes to a place for the month of October. And Tony Todd plays the Barker at it like the old the old school like Vaudevillian Barker getting people to come in. Mm-hmm. The movie starts with a mass serial killer killing one of these groups of kids that are going to the fair, the, 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 this amusement park, and then hanging her up in one of the haunted houses so you don't even know she's not real. Mm-hmm. And then slowly stalking all of her friends and killing them as the movie goes on. So it's a slasher movie. It's playing on this, this modern trope of like big thing with the, the, the horror themes at amusement parks. It's, it's awesome. It has one of the best twist endings surprise endings and it's creepy as fuck okay i cannot stress that up i will not spoil it beyond that i will just say if you like slasher movies you will like this you're not going to see anything you haven't seen before it's not it's not groundbreaking like dark city it's not historic like the Gollum. but Mm -hmm. if you're a fan of slashers you're going to love this and the ending alone is worth the price of admission there you go there's our 31 lesser known or, or overlooked horror movies for uh, the Halloween, the month of October, year of our Lord, twenty twenty one. Seth, where can any, where can people get a hold of you and and know about all of our different podcasts? Well, we are at geekvilleradio.com. That is the main site for all things Geekville, including this show. We have a plethora of other shows. This is the only explicit rated or mature rated show that we do. All of our other shows are family friendly. Of course, the Geekville which is Radio. obvious, which is obvious by the f bombs I dropped during the show. Right, right. <laughs> but obviously, Geekville Radio is kind of the flagship show, which is our news show. Then we also have Examine the Doctor, which is about Doctor Who. We have uh, a Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame, where we talk about uh, lesser known icons, you might say, that might have inspired more modern, more popular things. And we have the Nostalgia uh, Trip, which, just like it sounds, we talk about old movies, old TV shows pop culture, things like that. That can all be found at geekvilleradio.com. And then as far as the social media, Geekville Radio on Facebook and Twitter, but we do also have an Examining the Dead specific Facebook. Just look for Examining the Dead podcast on Facebook and you should find us. And Train, if you want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? They can always find me on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. That is pretty much my handle across all social media platforms is do a search for me. Like you said, we do have a Facebook page here for Examining the Dead. That is where you will find the trailers for all of these posted. 
Plus, I'm sure the show notes are going to have them listed as well. <laughs> yep, yep. All the IMDb um, and all that good stuff, too. Yep. We're, we enjoy doing this. We do it every year. Uh, I, I think I've actually gotten set to watch them more movies based on doing oh. this every year. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Some stuff. So anyway, if you have any questions for either of us, these are you now know the ways to get a hold of us. Uh, give us some suggestions for maybe next year, what you think are some lesser-known or overlooked horror movies. We will definitely take them into consideration because we have in the past uh, had listeners and friends and fans tell us what to put in. So as we record this, this is the day before Halloween. You will be listening to this on Halloween or thereafter. Hopefully you have a safe and happy and spooky Halloween. Remember to keep, keep it safe. We love doing this here, like I said, at, at Geekville Radio. We think you guys enjoy it too. And until next time, Remember, don't ever go camping at Crystal Lake. Don't ever trick-or-treat in Haddonfield. And do not fall asleep in Springwood. Until then, try to stay out of the dark. Examining the Dead is part of the Geekville Radio Network and part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. And do not represent the opinions of Geekville Radio or any of their affiliates. Examining the Dead is not sponsored or endorsed by any product or service unless specifically stated. Some media used on Examining the Dead is part of its respective copyright owners, all rights reserved. Theme music by Kevin McLeod can be found at incompetech.com.